welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to have you guys join us here and have you guys join us online. You know, there are, there are certain sounds that just elicit particular reactions. Uh, I think of, of a, for me, one of the sounds that I, just, I love to hear is the sound of a Formula One engine as it exits the hairpin and accelerates down the straightaway. Can I get an amen? Amen, right? That, there's, there's nothing like it. There really is. And then, then there's some sounds that are not so encouraging. Sounds like the dentist drill. How many people, just, just the thought of that alone begins to, to just gnaw their, their, uh, their, their mind. Or, or then there's the, the nails on the chalkboard, which I call country music. Hey-oh. And then we learned recently that there are some rather strong reactions, both positively and negative, to the saxophone. But uh, it's also true with words. Since words communicate ideas, there are certain ideas that have uh, some strong reactions. Words like abortion, or masks, or vaccines. And, And the same is true with words in the Bible, or ideas in the Bible. Words like predestination, or judgment day, or sovereignty of God. All they have, you know, they begin to conjure up certain ideas in our minds. And, and that's true, particularly of one word that we looked at last week, which was submission. And so we're going to continue on that discussion, and we're going to add a couple more words to it that are likely loaded with all kinds of emotional baggage for each of us. Those words are authority and headship. You know, I asked, I asked Joy this week, I said, what, what should I include? What, what do you think I should talk about uh, on this topic? And, and her reaction, I think, summarized it all. She, she shuddered, she shook her head, and she said, why can't we just move on and ignore it? <laughs> and, and, you know, she's not alone in her thinking that way. In, you know, my, my study this, this past week, I came across a, a website, a group, where they were advocating that there are seven passages in the Bible that we, just, we, we shouldn't read anymore. They're not going so far as to throw them out of the Bible. They're just saying, we shouldn't read them. Just ignore them. And in fact, if your church does read them, then here's a pamphlet to give to your, your leadership so they could get rid of it. And I'm pretty sure there might be a few silent amens in people's minds hearing that idea. But, um, but the reality is we don't need to be afraid of these passages. We don't need to be afraid of these verses. Instead, what I want us to do is, is let go of the emotional baggage that is often associated with these verses and these passages so that we could understand what is it that Father's really trying to tell us. Because think about this. way: We said last time that God's the only one that's qualified to speak on marriage in particular. But I think it's true in every relationship. But on matters of men and women and marriage in particular, God is the one that's qualified and we want to hear from him. And so to ignore these passages, all we're doing is we're just going to set ourselves up for a miserable experience. So rather than ignore them, let's see exactly what it is that God's wanting to say to us in them. Now, I don't normally do this, but I thought I'd give you an outline to kind of begin the message. That way you'll kind of know what's coming so you don't tune me out in the first five minutes um, from what I have to say. But basically the outline is this. We're going to start off with talking about the importance and, uh, of, author- of authority and why there is a head in the marriage. And then what is the role of that head within the marriage? 
And then what does that mean for the wife? And finally, what does that mean for the husband? And, uh, and so we're going to look at some of the passages that are hard and difficult and try to, that I think have been used negatively, have been used to hurt or control people. And my hope is that we'll begin to see that there's great hope in this because these passages ultimately they're going to lead us to Jesus and that's where we find life. That's the point of it. So let's read our passage for this morning. It's Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 24 again. And it begins, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord for that. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Heavenly Father, here we are again, look at this passage, and, and I know that there's, there's so much opportunity for more hurt, so much opportunity for people to misunderstand what it is that you're trying to say to us. And, and so my prayer, Father, is that you would be the teacher and help us to see the hope. Help us to see the glory in your wisdom, in your counsel as to why you're doing this and that we wouldn't be defensive against you, but we would trust you in this. In your name we pray. Amen. So last week we said we, we looked at this word submission. And, and in the Greek, the word is hypotasso. And we said what it really literally means is to willingly place yourself under another person's authority. And, and the willingness part, I think, is critical in this, is that nobody is subjecting you. Instead, you are subjecting yourself to another. And, and we saw that verse 22 here is actually tied to verse 21, that there is no be subject in verse 22. It's borrowed from verse 21. And, and that means that verse 22 is not the beginning of a new section. It's a continuation of what he's been talking about in verse 21, and even prior to that, which is about being, being filled by the Holy Spirit. And those who are being, being filled will submit one to another in verse 21. And now in a marriage in particular, its wives are submit towards their husbands. But what we see here, though, it's a mutual submission. And, and that's where we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means is in terms of a mutual submission, that yes, the wife is to submit to the husband as the head, but the husband is going to submit to his wife as he loves her. Now, some might even ask, why is submission even required? I mean, why, why do we even need authority? Can't we just get rid of it and just, just move on? And we saw last time when we were in, in Genesis in the garden, we, we saw that God made Adam. But he wasn't known as Adam. He was known as what? Anyone remember what he was called? Ish, right? My Lord. And, and when he was just Adam, my Lord, Ish, God gave him authority over all of creation, over all the garden. And that, that, that authority he was going to share then with his Isha, his lady. And so what we see here, though, is that God established authority and even established the authority before the fall, before the curse, before any sin was in there. And so what that tells us is that authority is not bad. It's God-ordained. It's, it's God designed by God. Now, in today's culture, you know, we don't trust authority. And, and we don't, therefore, we don't know who to listen to. We don't know who to follow. We don't know who to trust. I mean, for example, we've got in the media, the media is constantly trying to undermine the authority, if, especially if they don't like the government in power and they're doing everything they can to get them out of power. Or, or then you have the government's officials who are, aren't helping themselves at all, who are acting in a hypocritical manner. For example, they tell people to stay home and don't get together, but they got to go now because they have a party to go off to. 
Or then you have the officials of, of, the, of the leadership who've actually openly admitted to lying about certain things or shading the truth at the very least in order to manipulate and control people. So when you see authority acting in, the, in such a harsh and negative way, it's hard to trust them. It's hard to honor them. Now, in, in defense, I think of today's culture, it's not a recent uh, development that we don't trust authority. I think that's, that mistrust of authority is going on for a long time long, long time. So does that mean we just need to abolish authority? Because, you know, authority just, you know, tends towards being bad and therefore we should abolish it and live in some libertarian paradise. To that, I'd say only if you want to do it at your own peril. Because see, what happens is nature abhors a vacuum. And so what happens is the moment we, we create this vacuum where there is no authority, there is no leadership, then what will happen is that vacuum will be filled, but it will be filled by despots. It will be filled by those who come and rule with a heavy handedness. These dictators will take over and they will begin to even abuse that authority even more. And so it's not about throwing out authority. <clears throat> it's understanding how authority can be good. You see, the biblical passages that speak to us submitting to authority, every one of them is redemptive. Let me say that again. Every passage that speaks to us submitting to an authority, whether it be to God or, or to even the government or to one another, they're meant to be redemptive. You see, <clears throat> in the garden, the, at the fall of man, what happened is in that moment, Adam and Eve, they essentially they wanted to be their own God. They didn't want to be under authority anymore. They, they wanted to be the one that's in control and ultimately then the one that's worshipped. And, and so to, to not be under God's authority meant that they could be under their own authority. And ultimately, I think that's what atheism is all about. right? Atheism, they've, they've created this whole fairy tale or story of evolution, which has so many giant holes in it that whole galaxies could pass through them. There, there's all kinds of problems with it, but they've openly admitted to creating it because they don't want to be accountable to God. One famous atheist, he went as far as to say that he'd be willing to accept that there is a designer as long as he's not accountable to one. And so ultimately that's what it's about, is not wanting to be accountable to anyone else, but to be our own God, to be the one on top. And so for God then, in order to restore and, and redeem relationships, that means submitting yes to him, but there's gonna need to be a submitting one to another. And that's what his word is teaching us. So let's, let's take a look at one of those passages now that I think has been used in a negative way or at least causes 50% of the population to get you know, a little bit nervy with. But I think it's been, been one that's misunderstood. And so in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, Paul writes this. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Now, again, there are some who just say, let's ignore it. And they, they ignore it they, on, the, on the basis that it's, it's cultural, that Paul is only writing to the church in Corinth and, and that we should just leave it there. I understand why, because they don't like the passage, so they're trying to get rid of it. But the problem is, it's really, we can't, we can't be the ones to decide whether I like it or not and therefore whether I keep it or not. Now, there are verses that are cultural and there are things that are applicable or not applicable today, particularly when you compare the Old Testament and the New Testament. But you have to have some biblical basis as to make that reasoning that whether it fits or doesn't fit. And the reality is there's nothing in this passage that would tell us that it's cultural. 
In fact, this idea here about husbands being the head is something that Paul repeats to the church of Ephesus, not just the church in Corinth. He repeats to the church in Colossae. And Peter also justifies it or backs it up. And so apparently it's not just something limited to a particular culture. So here's what another person had said. Well, in order to get rid of it, they, they really didn't like the idea of authority and leadership. And so basically their argument was, well, head refers to source. You know, sort of like head of a river. And, and so basically, husbands, you're the source towards your wives. Ladies, I, I don't know how that sounds to you, but that's worse. It really is worse. Think about it. I mean, basically what you're saying is, I don't want my husband to be my authority. Instead, I'm going to make him my God. Because he's now my source. He's the one that's going to provide everything I need. And, and ladies, your husband makes a lousy God. Can I get an amen? a little too loud. We offer counseling if you, uh, if you need it. So, so what does head mean? Well, I, I think this is one of those cases where the simplest explanation makes sense, and that's to lead. See, the word there in, in the Greek head simply refers to that object that's sitting on your shoulders. It, it's literally your head, and, and it's the place where we make decisions, where we think about things. And so I think it's clear that what he's talking about is husbands are to lead their wives. Let's take a look at that passage again. And verse three, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. You notice there are three parts in this verse. And I think the first and third are not controversial, but the middle is, and that makes sense to me. So let's try to understand the first and third parts and then apply that same reasoning and logic into that middle part, and I think we'll, we'll be able to come out of it clean. So that first part is talks about Christ is the head of every man. And I, I think in general it's mankind, so I'd say it's, it's man and women here. But essentially what it's talking about is, is he is leading them. He's caring for them. He's nurturing them. It's, it's what he wants to do. He wants to provide for them in that way. And then in the third part, it talks about how God is the head of Christ. And so we think about here again that, that Christ has willfully submitted himself to God the Father. He, he only, it says in John multiple times, he only did what the Father told him to do. Or he would only say what the Father would tell him to say. So he was allowing the Father to lead and guide him. And he was following lockstep with his Father. And so that's what it's talking about there. Now notice, does, does Jesus submitting himself to the Father in any way make Jesus inferior? Is it in any way make Jesus weak? No, in fact, I'd argue it took strength for Jesus to do all that. And so in that same way, where a wife is submitting towards her husband, in no way does it make her inferior. In no way does it make her less than or make her weaker in any way at all. Now, I've heard this joke, and maybe you've heard this before, is that <clears throat> they'll say, okay, I agree, husbands are the head, but women are the neck. And the neck decides where the head turns. That's funny, and it's cute, but that's manipulative, right? That is not what God's talking about here. It's not what he's commanding us or instructing us. But please understand, being the head does not place you in a position of greater importance. It does not make you a master to some slave. Instead, it's actually the opposite. It makes you the one who serves the most. So again, you think about how Christ is the head of every man. And what did Jesus do when he was with his disciples? 
he was the one to take the towel and wash their feet. Even though he was master, he was rabbi, he was, he was God, and yet he was the one that served them. The, the same is true here at, at New Life with our elders. As elders, we're in no way greater than anyone else here. Instead, as elders, we're simply the first ones to put our necks out on the line for everyone else. More is demanded for us to serve than it is for us to receive. So then the question is, well, why did God make men the head then? And well, quite frankly, I don't know. I don't, I don't have an answer other than it was by design. You see, the, the only qualification required to be the head of a home, to be the head of a wife, is to get married. It says nothing about your training, about how you live, or, or your you know, study of scripture and so forth, how spiritual you are. It simply is, the husband is the head. Now, what about women that are better than their husbands in terms of being more mature and, and, and more wise and smarter and so forth? Absolutely. And, and I mean, think about it. That doesn't stop Megan from submitting to Greg. I'm so glad Greg's here. More so than Megan. And just really glad Greg's here. But, but think about it. In fact, that, that spiritual woman, because she's spiritual, will submit towards her husband. But you see, what many women have done is they've actually said that, well, my husband's not spiritual enough, or he's not leading enough. Well, by whose justification now? By your own, which basically ends up setting you up for, as long as we agree, I will submit to him. But the moment we disagree, well, now he's not being spiritual. Is that submission? Or does that just happen to be that you're on the same path? You see, the true test of, of submission doesn't show up until there's a disagreement. Until you're, you're not on the same page, do you really begin to discover what does submission look like? But again, it's, it's by design. And, and I think the design here is, is it's based on created order, as Paul says. So in the same passage, he's going to go on. And again, it's showing that it's much bigger than any kind of culture. It's bigger than what was going on in Corinth or in Ephesus or any other church. It's it's about humanity. Look what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, For man does not originate for woman, but woman for man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now, what I want you to see here is what Paul's doing here is he's affirming that men and women are different. That's, that's a big point. He's trying to make a contrast between them. In, in our world, they want, to, they want to blur that line. They, don't want, they want to pretend that there is no differences between men and women. And therefore, what ends up happening is we destroy what's wonderful about man and we destroy what's wonderful about woman because we're trying to make each other into something we're not meant to be. And, and see, even in the church, we might say, well, that's, but, but Scripture's trying to teach that. For example, in Galatians 3.28, where it says there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. And, and that's true what Paul's talking about, but he's not talking about roles there. He's talking about our righteousness. He's talking about our identity in Christ. He's talking about equality in that verse. And that's what's so powerful about it, is that we're all equal in Jesus. But again, we're different. We have different roles within the kingdom. And so... For example, to abolish those roles would, would be ridiculous. To pretend that men are, are the same as women is ridiculous because men still can't have babies. Despite what our world is trying to tell us, men can't have babies. And women can't impregnate women. It can't be done. 
we need each other, as he's, he's going to show us in, in a little bit. But, but I want you to understand masculinity and femininity are different, but they're on a spectrum. And, and so on, on one end of the spectrum, you, you would have the, the pure masculinity. On the other end of the spectrum, you have pure femininity. Now, the reality is neither of us, generally none of us live on an extreme, but we're somewhere in between. And most women would tend towards femininity and most men would, towards, would tend towards masculinity. Now, are there some women that might be a little bit more masculine than some men? Absolutely. And vice versa. But that doesn't remove the fact that there are these characteristics of masculinity and femininity. Female characteristics would include things like caring or the appreciation of beauty or cooperation in terms of being highly relational. We see that over and over and over again in every single study out there. It's often why they say, I think women's minds are like spaghetti. They're, they got so many things going on because they're trying to figure out how does this action here impact this person over there? And that's complex and it's sometimes maddening as a guy to live with, but it's beautiful and it's by design. It's why God created it in that way. And, and think about it. it it's, it's why they're made as moms. I mean, if, if dads were the ones to be the, that, that primary caregiver for that newborn baby, I think after four weeks, they'd throw him out the window. This baby's broken. It just won't stop crying. I'm sending it back, right? They, it just, they, they're not built for that sort of thing, right? Masculine or male characteristics would be things like strength and power, that desire to be a hero and make a difference, to achieve something great, to want to want to leave a mark and be highly productive in their thinking. It's, it's why they're so goal-oriented. Why, the, why we went to the moon and back. Why we went to Mars. Why, why the first person to climb Mount Everest was a man. And they asked him why. He says, because it was there. It's just, that's how we think. That's how we operate as men. Now, again, please notice that together, both men and women, they reflect the nature of God. That there are, there are feminine characteristics of God and there are masculine characteristics of God. That God is highly relational. He's caring. He truly appreciates beauty. But he's also strong and he's a builder and he's creative. And what this tells us is that masculinity and femininity, even at their extremes, aren't bad. Masculinity is not toxic any more than femininity is toxic. They can be. But anything can be bad in that sense, right? So what we, we don't need less masculinity. We need good and more of it masculinity. In the same way, we don't need less femininity. We need more good femininity. But what we see here is in our world is what we're trying to do is we're trying to abolish the differences between men and women in the pursuit of equality. But the reality is, again, we're only hurting ourselves. Because what, what that means is what happens is, is people aren't free to be themselves anymore. It's interesting in, in places like Sweden where they have, they, they go over, bend over backwards for the, the purpose of, of equality, where, where that's paramount and in a good way, I would say. What they find there is that more women there choose occupations that fit towards those feminine characteristics. There is a higher percentage of women in things like nursing and teaching. Whereas the, the men, there's a higher proportion of men in the STEMs, in the science, technology, engineering, and maths. And, and it's not because they don't want 
more women in engineering and more men in nursing. They do. It's just that when they give that freedom of choice, there becomes a greater disparity. It's really that that we come closer towards that middle when it's forced, when it's pressured. Now, please understand, does that men mean that men can't be nurses or, or a teacher or anything like that? Absolutely not. In the same way, women can be engineers and scientists and so forth. That's, that's not what we're talking about, right? It's happening on a spectrum. And again, where you are on that spectrum is fine. But don't, don't hear this as, a, oh, I'm a, I'm a nurse or I'm a teacher as a man. Then maybe I'm less of a man. Not at all. Not at all. Right? What's, what I find interesting, though, is in this, in this world where we're trying to blur masculinity and femininity and make them one, I think we've taken a giant step backwards from what, where we used to be. I mean, we, we just come to the point where women were allowed to be tomboys, right? Where women were allowed to, to, to you know, be police officers and, and, and be engineers and no one bat an eye at that anymore. We're getting to that point. And the, now what's happened is, oh, you're more of a tomboy. You must be a, a boy trapped in a girl's body. Or, or you'd have a, a man that is, is more on that caring side and like, oh, you, you must actually really be a woman trapped in a, in a man's body. And so what's happened is we've, we've narrowed what femininity can be and we've narrowed what masculinity can be instead of just seeing him on a spectrum again. Crazy. But again, there's, again we need to remember there's balance. And Paul talks about this balance in this passage, right? So in, in 1 Corinthians 11, in verse 3, we saw that, that husbands are the head. And then we see why, because in verses 8 and 9, because of, that's how God created them to be. He created Adam first, and Eve came from Adam. But to make sure we don't run too far away with this. And I think verses 11 and 12 need to be quoted every time you quote verses 3, 8, and 9. And verses 11 and 12 say this, However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is the man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Hey guys, just so we don't get too, too far ahead of ourselves, without women, there's no guys. Right? And quite frankly, I'm not sure it's worth living anymore. But, but the other side also works. You take away guys, and there's no ladies. We need each other. And that's by design again. That's what God has done here. And so what you notice here is this, this need for one another. Again, that mutual submission here, that reminder that one isn't greater than the other. So what does it mean then for the wife to place herself under the authority of, of her husband as her head? Does that mean she loses her voice? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. A, a woman's place is not being quiet. That's not what it's talking about, right? Now, some would say, well, 1 Corinthians 14 talks about that a, a woman should be silent in church. Got to understand the context of that passage. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this one here, but the context of the passage beginning in the middle of chapter 11 all the way to the end of 14, Paul's talking about what does public worship look like as the body of Christ? What does it look like when we get together on a Sunday morning or when we get together on a good Friday or, or any time during the week? When we gather together publicly to worship God, what does it look like? And he was talking about things like speaking in tongues or, or prophecy and, and so forth. Prophecy would be an example of what Lori and Kat did a few weeks back where they came up and they just shared a word from God to encourage us. 
That was wonderful, Lori, by the way. Appreciate that. And Kat, that was great too. And so that would be prophecy here. And so what happens now, as Paul says, is that when someone has a word from the Lord, we need to judge that. We need to be critical of it, not in a, in a negative way, but in terms of like, is that actually true? See, if someone got up here and says that, that God is angry with you and he's coming to get you if you don't clean up your act, we would know that's not true because the wrath of God has been poured out already. That means that God may not be happy what's going on, but he's not angry at you. He's not ready to punish you. All that was taken care of on the cross. So if someone were to get up and say that, then as elders, we would come and we would tell everyone that's not from God. So we don't leave here panicked and afraid. And so what Paul was saying here in 1 Corinthians 14 is, he says, and if a guy get up and were to judge it, since it's actually the prophets that are meant to judge that, you don't have his wife come and judge him. I mean, think about it. Eldon gets up and he's about to, he shares something and it's way off in left field. Like, you know, it's Eldon. It's all over the place. Unpredictable, as expected. But then Lori gets up and she's the one that says, Eldon, you're wrong. How's that car ride home going to be? How's that dinner going to be? Not so good. So we want to protect Lori. And Lori, you're off the hook. You don't say anything. We will say something. That way, Eldon's mad at me and not you. That's what he's talking about. Now at home, Lori might bring it up, but it's safer now because the difference being is Lori would have publicly embarrassed Eldon, where at home she can say it to him quietly and privately. So it's not that women lose their voice in any way. <clears throat> because ladies, you have to understand, <clears throat> your voice is required. Your voice is critical because really what your role is, is one of influence. And you influence us through your voice through your words. Now, please understand, your influence will be either positive or negative. It's both. And you get to decide which way it's going to go. And so if you're, if you're using your words <clears throat> uh, harshly, <clears throat> uh, negatively, if you're, if, you're, if you're criticizing and cutting down and, and you're condemning your husband, you're going to have a negative influence. And he's, he's going to withdraw. He's going to get quiet. <clears throat> He's going to have difficulty now sharing. But if you build him up and you encourage him, or you, <clears throat> most importantly, you offer your own ideas and perspective, that's what we need as husbands. You see, just because I'm the head, it doesn't mean that, that Joy's going to do whatever I tell her. I've tried. It doesn't, it doesn't work. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's, a, it's actually it's a good thing because there have been many times where, where she's been right and I've been the other thing. <laughs> that I've been wrong. Ugh. Here's an example. When, um, when, when we were pregnant with, with Zoe, we were pregnant. Look at that. When, uh, we, when we were pregnant with Zoe, we, we thought about going with a midwife rather than the doctor. And, and I was worried that the midwife was basically going to push me to the side and take over my role as husband in that moment. And, and so I was reluctant to, work, to, to use a midwife. But I listened to my wife and I said, okay, let's do it. And so after we talked about it, we agreed to it. We went forward and we went with a midwife. And it was an incredibly great and positive experience that I would have missed out on if I didn't listen to my wife, if I didn't take her counsel and take it seriously. The, the very fact that we're here this morning actually is, is in tribute to my wife. 
She was, she was the one that wanted to do a church plant in the first place. I thought it was crazy, and no one in the right mind would want to do a church plant. And yet it was her idea. But long before we ever happened, where we had our first Sunday, it was six years prior to that that I had this idea of becoming a pastor and pastoring a church. And that's I was ready to go in that moment, but she wasn't ready to go yet. See, she wasn't ready to be a pastor's wife. And so it took six years for us to talk about it and work through it. And I didn't say, well, I'm the husband. Let's just do it. And it's a good thing I didn't do it then because I wasn't ready. There's a lot of things God needed to develop in me, a lot of maturing that God had to do, and a lot of things he had to open my eyes to that made me ready when we finally launched. And so I had to listen to my wife, and I took her counsel seriously. And I didn't just jump ahead and say, well, I'm the husband, I'm the head, you have to listen to me. No, I took my wife seriously because guess what? I know she's listening to Jesus too, and I don't have perfect discernment. Now, does that mean I only do what she says? No. I mean, by the time it got to the end of the six years, she was still a little bit reluctant. She was mostly there, but would have days of reluctance. And in that moment, I was confident now that it was time to go. And again, we have no regrets about it. But, but what do we do then when, when you have a difference of opinion and a decision has to be made? That's why there's a head. That's why someone has that authority now to make that decision. But again, that doesn't mean that it's just my way as the husband. I remember another time when, uh, again, we were pregnant uh, with our last child. And, and I, I grew up in a family where, I, I don't know, maybe something about the, the UK, where basically I think there was a challenge that if you could show up on a Sunday morning with a newborn baby and no one knew you were pregnant, you got an award. I don't know what the award was. It might have been, you know, a, a, you know, a new car, I don't know. But you won something. So basically, what the, what the family would do, what the wife would do, is she would do everything she could to hide the pregnancy as long as she could. Whereas Joy grew up in Latin America, and they love to celebrate. They love to share the news. So the moment you pee on the stick, you're calling people. Oh, it was actually negative. Never mind. Right? Like They are so excited to tell everyone. So that's our cultures, right? She wants to tell everyone the moment she found out, and I'm trying to hide it. And so we go back and forth. And this is our fifth pregnancy. We're still trying to figure it out. And so she came to me one day and she says, okay, Ross, I, you know what? If you want to not tell anyone, I will submit to that. I will, I will do that. But then God said into my head, lay down your life. And I knew what that meant was that as the head, I was going to choose and I was going to give it to my wife. I was going to defer to her. And so we told people, I'm still leading even though I'm adopting her idea. And so here's what was happening, this dynamic here of her submitting to me as the head and me laying down my life to love her as Christ loved the church. And that's what we see in marriage. But what you see here is the, the idea here to willingly submit yourself, to place yourself under someone else's authority as your head, let's call it for what it is. It's madness. It's absolutely crazy. Because you have one person who is not fully mature, who's still learning, who from time to time makes mistakes, submitting themselves to someone else who might even make more mistakes. And it's terrifying and it's scary. And yet we're called to do it. And therefore, what it tells us the only way that we can pull that off is it has to be a supernatural act. Again, this is what Paul was talking about a few verses earlier, about be being filled by the Holy Spirit. 
right? It's not that you're getting more and more of the Holy Spirit. Instead, you are trusting in the Holy Spirit more and more. Remember, we use that illustration of, of the pipe. Which pipe is going to flow through me? Am I going to listen to the flesh and allow the flesh to flow through me? Because if I do, then I will rebel. I will rebel against that authority. Or if I just go along to get along, and that's not submitting either. But if I, if I turn the pipe and I receive from Jesus now, and I let the Spirit fill me with His power and His strength in that moment, then now what happens is I can supernaturally submit to those who are in authority to me. You see, in verse 22 there of Ephesians, it says that we're the wives are to submit as to the Lord. Because what you're doing in that moment when you're turning to Jesus, you're first submitting to him. And because you're submitting to him, that allows and empowers you to submit to your, to your husband. And God will honor that. And as we'll see in a few minutes, he will protect you as well. But what I want you to see, guys, is that there is greater responsibility on you and I as a result. I mean, think about it. In, in verse 23, look what Paul says. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. What is he doing here? He's likening what it means to be the head to what he is to the church, to the body of Christ. We saw earlier, right, that Jesus was the one to wash the disciples' feet. He's the one that sacrificed everything. He's the one that went to the cross. He's the one that, that went willingly despite not wanting to. He was the one that laid it out all out there, emptying himself. And you see, it's not my job to get joy to submit to me. That's not what I'm trying to do at all. Instead, what I'm trying to do is to serve her in such a way that I earn her trust to make it easier for her to willingly submit to me and place herself under, under my leadership. Where she has confidence and she knows that I'm not gonna be selfish. That I'm not gonna do things just because it makes me more comfortable, that it's easier for me and everyone's gotta serve me and, and I'm the king of the castle. That it's upside down now. That I'm the one that's serving them, trying to make their life more comfortable, trying to make, make it so that they grow and mature in the best way possible. Again, this is not the world's way. The world's way would have the, the person on top who's the head as the most important person. I mean, think about it, what, how we treat leaders, presidents, and CEOs and companies, how, how we treat prime ministers and presidents of countries, kings and queens, and sadly, even pastors and elders. We're not at the top. Those who are in leadership are always at the bottom to serve. Now, please understand, I'm not responsible for my family. See, I hear a lot of people talking about that. Well, if I'm the head and I'm in authority, I'm responsible for them. And the reality is I'm not. And that's good because that means I don't have to control them anymore. You see, if I'm responsible for the outcome and their choices, I have to control every action they make. And that's not good news for me, and it's certainly not good news for them. So I'm not called to be responsible for them. Instead, I'm responsible to them. And there's a big difference. You see, ever since my, my, my babies were literally babies, I was not responsible for them. But I was responsible to feed them and clothe them and change them and bathe them because they did nothing. And some days they still do nothing. But, but mostly when they were babies, they really did nothing. And so I was not responsible for them, but I was responsible to provide everything they needed in that moment. 
But now as they've gotten older and they've learned to feed themselves and to wipe their own bums and bath themselves and shower and go to bed and so forth, my responsibility to them changes. But I'm still responsible to them, but now in different ways. I'm responsible to, to nurture them, to provide that environment where they will grow and trust Jesus as best they know how. The outcome, not on me. That's between them and God. And so that's what it means then as, as a husband to his wife. I'm not responsible for my wife, which means I don't have to control her. Instead, what I do is I get to love her and I get to serve her. As, as he's going to go on in this passage, he talks about to cherish and to nourish, to allow her to grow. But if I, if I abdicate that responsibility, if I just said, well, you lead, you, you take it, and I'll, I'll, I'll play it safe, and I'll just take a step back, I'm still responsible. All I've done is I've adopted all those decisions, and I'm still the one that's responsible in those moments. So here's, here's the advice. Here's the things that I tell my kids. I tell my daughters this. That basically, when, when you meet a, meet a man one day, you know, in your early 40s, and, and when you meet that person, the question, when you're wondering, is this the one for me? Is this the one I want to marry? The question they need to ask themselves above all other questions, is this the one, is this the man that I want to submit myself to? Is this the one that I willingly want to place my, uh, have as my authority, as my head? And if you're, if you're not sure about that, then the answer is no. It doesn't matter how kind or how, you know, what he looks like or how much money or what he's this or that. If you're not willing to submit yourself to him, don't marry him. Because that's what you're doing in marriage. And, and to Caleb, to my boy, I'll say this. Is this the one you want to lay down your life for? Is this the one you want to, to sacrifice your own comfort is this the one you want to, to give up maybe even some of your dreams in order to love and nurture? Because if it's not, don't marry her. doesn't matter how pretty she is, how beautiful she is, or anything else. Only if you're willing to serve her and lay down your life for her. Do, do you see the gift, guys, that we're getting? I mean, again, it's, it's sheer madness, but it's, it's beautiful that, that a woman would willingly say, here I am, here's my heart. I'm going to be open to you. I'm going to be vulnerable to you. And I know it's scary for you ladies to do so, especially because you know the track record of your man. You've, you've seen him up close. You've seen his failures and his faults. But I want you to know that God will always honor that level of submission. He'll always protect you. So it's interesting in, in 1 Peter, after you know the end of, end of 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter there, he's talking about how we need to submit to all authority, even governmental authority, even if that governmental authority is off base. So keep that in mind today because some people have some, some people have strong opinions about governments today. And we're told to submit to all governments of all authority because all authority is from God. But then in verse one of, of chapter three, he continues on that idea of submission and he's now going to talk about wives. And how wives, again, are to respect towards your husbands, even if they are disobedient to the word. So even when they're wrong, even when they're, they're not trusting Jesus, wives, you're still to submit to him. Why? Because without even saying a word, your influence through your behavior might win him over. It, it, it might begin to soften him up and open him up to what God wants to say to him. 
And so in doing so, you can, you can actually bring him out of that immaturity into more maturity through your respecting of him. But then in verse 7, Peter switches. And now he's going to say something to the wife, to the husband, sorry. And, and it's one of those verses that you and I need to take carefully as guys. It says, you husbands in the same way. Remember, what's he talking about? He's talking about submission. We submitting the governments, we sub, wives submitting to the husbands. Husbands, now you need to submit to your wives in this way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. As with someone weaker. Isn't that exciting? Should we just close in prayer on that one and self-explanatory? Live with your wives in an understanding way of someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Listen, I know that weaker vessel thing sends to rub women the wrong way. And I think we've misunderstood the heart of what Peter's trying to say. I think what he's trying to recognize here is the vulnerability that women are in. I mean, think about it. They are willingly placing themselves under the authority of this guy who's not living perfectly all the time. That's a scary and terrifying proposition. And God recognized that. And he says, guys, do you realize the gift you're given here? That these ladies are vulnerable to you. And that, that you can do so much to crush them. I mean, really, I think, I think if a guy wants to win any argument, he can. And not just with physical violence, but with his words. That with his words, it talks about how there's life and death in the tongue in Proverbs. That as husbands, we can destroy our wives really easily because of the vulnerability that they're, they're giving to us, the permission they're giving to us. And so Peter writes here and he says, guys, listen, understand what you've been given. Understand the vulnerable position they're in. Be patient with them. Even in those moments where they're not submitting to you, be patient with them. Understand how scared they are. Why? Because they are a fellow heir of the grace of God. Again, he's reinstated. He's reminded us of that, in, of, of that equality there. But then he, he provides something here that, that really doesn't show up in other parts of Scripture. He says, if you don't, if you don't honor her in that way, he says, your prayers will be hindered. Think about that. I mean, it doesn't talk about if, if you go off and, and you lie and you cheat and you steal, that your prayers will be hindered. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that if you, um, if you, you destroy people's lives, your prayers will be hindered. But it says if you mistreat your wife, your prayers will be hindered. What does that mean? Well, imagine you come to God and you say, okay, God, you know what? I'm really excited about my neighbor who just moved in. I mean, I think he's this close to salvation. I just really just, he's really close. So I, I'm here, Lord, let's pray and pray that he'll, he'll, he'll make that decision for you. And, and I'm praying, Lord, that you'll give me the words and I'm praying and then God will interrupt that prayer. And he says, wait a minute, hold on. I don't want to talk about the neighbor. But God, I mean, he's this close to salvation. He's just really this close. Yeah, I don't want to talk about that. That's, that's not what I want to talk about. There's one thing I want to talk about. And that's how you're treating my daughter. That's how you're treating my bride. Because just remember, guys, she may be your bride, but she's also Jesus' bride. And Jesus will protect her.
And he will be the one to speak up. He'll be the one to say, now listen, that's not okay. And you need to honor her. You need to treat her well. You need to be a good head. You need to be a good man because that's what she needs. Guys, I don't know how else to say it, but what what she needs is she needs us. She needs us to engage and to be present. Just like, guys, you need her femininity. She needs your masculinity. She needs your strength, your protection. She needs, needs you to be the one to step in when she's struggling and remind her that it'll be okay, that you love her, that you and her together, trusting Jesus, will get through it. And I know for many guys, this is terrifying. It's why we retreat, because we're so afraid of failure. Because if I fail, it says so much more about who I am, and I don't know if I can handle the shame. But the reality is that there, that fear, we could use to our advantage. Because that terror and fear can drive us to Jesus. In the same way, it takes supernatural uh, ability to submit a wife to, for a wife to submit to her husband. We have that same supernatural ability as husbands to love our wives, love our lives the way that Christ, love our wives the way that Christ loved the church. See, so we turn to Him. We say, "Okay, Jesus, I'm going to trust you right now." And I'm scared, and I'm nervous, and I'm terrified, and I know I'm going to screw up, but I'm going to trust you anyways even when I screw up. And what you will see is what it means then to be being filled. You will see that that life of Jesus ministering to your wife and she will come alive because she will see someone that she can trust. So I want to give you another question to think about this week. I I know some of you um, asked the question, And I'm sorry about that because some of those discussions were not easy. But I'm glad you did because they're healthy discussions. And I know some husbands that were thinking, yeah, there's no way I'm going to ask that question out of fear. And I get that too. But I also heard from some wives who said, I wish you would ask, but I'm afraid he won't. And I understand. But guys, this is our opportunity to lead. This is our opportunity to Put your masculinity on display and put yourself out in a vulnerable way. And so guys, here's the question for you to ask. And the question is, what can I do to earn your trust and make you feel more confident as you willingly place yourself under my authority? Honey, what can I do to earn your trust? What can I do to to make it safer for you to trust me? And you're not going to always like what you hear, right? So you have to kind of give her permission to say some things that are hard to hear, but they're constructive. They're, they're coming hopefully from a place of wanting to help and listen to her and then begin to try to be that man that you want to be, to be that man that God's called you to be, to be that man that God's empowered you to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we don't always understand why you do what you do, but you have a reason. And you have you've created this world in order. And in that order there is authority. And that authority applies in our workplaces, it applies in our, our governments, 
It, uh, it applies even in churches, but it also applies to the smallest units of relationships, and that's in a husband and a wife. And men don't earn it, they don't deserve it, but yet you've given them that authority. And I pray that as men, we would use it well, that we would be responsible to our wives by trusting you, and that we would love them in such a way that they would be, it'd be easy for them to trust us. But Father, even to those, those wives that are struggling to trust their husbands, you allow them and enable them and empower them to submit to them anyways, knowing full well that in submitting to them, they're submitting to you and you'll protect them. In your name we pray, amen. I don't have this in my notes, but I think it's important to say if, if you as a, as a woman are in, in a relationship though where you're being hurt, where you're being abused, Speak up. You, you will find elders here who are happy to protect you, who are happy to come to your, to your aid. We're not there to go beat up your husband because we love your husband too. Instead, we'll come alongside him and help him to be that man. But we want to hear from you. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.